This is the Edinburgh Reporter podcast, and today we're interviewing Owen Thompson, who's the SNP MP for Midlothian. We jump straight into our interview with Owen Thompson, MP for Midlothian, who's quite enjoying having a little bit more time to spend at home. And certainly during the interview, we were not interrupted, but um, we enjoyed the presence of his young daughter for a very short time. But here we are, we're finding out how it is for him during lockdown and having to go to London, of course, too. It, yeah, it's, I suppose part of the thing that I enjoy most about what I do is that every day is completely different. Um, that That's the only real certainty to... To, to the job that every day will be different. Um, for most of the period of lockdown, I have had still had to travel to to London. Um, back in March, briefly, um, the Parliament brought in electronic voting and allowed for all the business to be done electronically, which meant we, for a, a fairly short period, were able to, to do everything remotely. Um, I think at that time it was one of the first Parliaments in the world to do that and... Um, I'm on the procedure committee, which is, is as exciting as it sounds, although it's actually had quite an important role to play in getting all the new procedures in place to make sure that we were able to do what we needed to do. But because of the speed at which the Parliament had reacted, um, and a number of Parliaments around the world had come to ask how it worked and to find out more about it. And at the time, we were doing a session with uh, the Japanese Parliament and answering questions, and they were really interested in how the electronic voting was working. I have to say, and I, I, I took the chance to say to them that, well, it, it was working great, it didn't fail at any point. Unfortunately, though, now the government have stopped it. So they were asking us about this to implement it at the same time as the UK government had stopped it. So it made no sense. So even, e- even over the sort of the recall settings over... Certainly the, the one for the Brexit deal on the 30th of December, um, three or four of us had to be there physically. Um, last week, three of us had to be there to push a vote on the financial services bill. You can get a proxy vote, so one person needs to be there to cast the votes for everyone. If we want to move one of our own votes, we need two tellers in addition. So that means three of us need to be there. So I've been one of the... As a Deputy Chief Whip, I'm one of the, the few that I've had to, to continue to, to travel, which has brought its own challenges. But we've there's, there's more ability to, <clears throat> to take part virtually now, so that should reduce a bit more how often we need to do the travelling, but um, it's certainly still, still an issue. It does seem a little bit antiquated, doesn't it? That, you know, you yeah. have to have all that, the queuing that we saw and the, 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 the whole thing. And, and I, I posed this question to, um, I think it was Tommy Shepherd actually, I asked this question, you know, that after the last election and given that um, even at that stage between the election in 2019 and the end of 2020, given that Brexit was going to happen in some way or another, um, I asked. I think I asked him, was it worthwhile any SNP MPs actually being in Westminster at all? I think the key thing that we do is we make sure that we're not winning votes, but we make sure the arguments are heard. 
if we weren't there and if we weren't taking part in these debates, then the arguments that we're proposing simply wouldn't be heard. Um, you can issue press releases all you want after the event, but actually being there, being able to directly question the government to make them squirm, as they have had have done on many, many occasions, when the, you can see and you can tell when they get the questions that they really don't want to be asked. And if we are not there to ask them, then who will? Um, would be the, the sort of the position I would put it from. And I mean, our constituents, I mean, for, for years, our constituents have had representation at Westminster. We are still a part of that parliament for now. And to me, I want to make sure that my constituents are still able to be represented and show them that having an elected representative that will fight for them, what the benefits could come from that if we were able to fight for them in our own independent parliament. So I think there are major frustrations and not a single member of our group wants to be there a second longer than we have to be. But while we are a part of it, I think we need to take a full part to make sure that the, the arguments and positions are... And it shows up the government. It absolutely shows them up when they are failing, when we're able to say, well, why aren't you doing this? This is something we want to do, or this is something that the Scottish government are already doing. And they don't know where to look when that happens, because for many, it's, it, it appears anyway, pretty clear that their understanding of politics in Scotland is... It's severely limited, I think, would be a fair a fairest way of, of describing it. Yeah, but I, I think at the same time, I think the Scottish electorate are probably quite well versed in many matters, yeah. and I think we're probably, you know, one of the we were at the time of the independence referendum anyway, one of the best mm. uh, educated electorates in, yeah. in Europe. So, um, I think that probably still holds true. And back to your constituency, it's, it's really all about COVID and um, you know, people having people are having very tough times. Yeah. I don't know how some people are managing it. No, no. I mean, one of the campaigns that I've been supporting and done a fair bit of work on is the Excluded. Um, there's, they reckon, about three million who've had zero support at all, um, just because of where they started a self-employed work, if they're company directors, but the freelancers, contractors, any number of different circumstances can fall into that. And even now, had no support whatsoever. So uh, I and, and many others um, continue to make the arguments to the Chancellor that this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, done some work in the events industry as well, because in the summer when things had calmed down a bit, it was actually... I actually got a chance to get out and visit a couple of uh, local companies and a very, some very successful uh, local businesses and hospitality and events. And they're very clearly making the case that sort of they understand that the sort of large-scale events can't take place. But at that time, certainly a lot of support was for venues and, and that makes sure the venues could continue. But actually, they're not the venue. They're the sort of ancillary businesses that come in uh, and all that sort of stuff. So they are the ones who, without them, there could be no events. But actually, they weren't getting the levels of support that were required. So I think there's been, there's been a bit of movement there, which is encouraging. And the Scottish Government certainly brought in some specific grants, which have been helpful uh, yeah. to make sure that that is recognised. But there, there's, still, there's still those out there who are very, very badly struggling. Right at the start, the Chancellor stood up and said they would do whatever it took. 
Um, and but the Prime Minister talked about putting his arms around everyone and all this sort of stuff. Well, they've just not done it. They've failed spectacularly. Um, plenty of contracts have gone to Tory donors and family friends, but they can't find the money to put in the support for folk who've had absolutely nothing. So I think the priorities of the government have been shown to be badly out of sync with what I think the vast majority of the population would like to see them being. And so what, what, uh, what in particular, um, you know, in, in, uh, in Midlothian and Hennecook, wherever it is, where, what, what, uh, what, what struck you most uh, about what's happened? I mean, I, I think uh, when I've been out and about, I've been mm. really struck by what people are doing. They're out there yeah. volunteering and things like that. There's a whole lot of good stuff has come out of this pandemic as well as a whole lot of bad. That's, yeah, the, the community response has been absolutely amazing and I mean, it's one of the great things about Midlothian, it's still a community of communities and the community spirit is still massively strong. Um, you, you mentioned Penny Cook and their ambassadors have, have been out and about and have been continuing throughout the year to just to, to continue to look to see what's needed. Uh, and in Mayfield, the resilience team came together, the the Development Trust Community Council and I mean the number of food packages that they put together and support packages for families was absolutely incredible and um, how they managed to do it just with the wee team of volunteers they had it was absolutely spectacular and um, we've had similar groups doing different things across each of their communities in Midlothian and it's just people looking out for each other um, in a way that probably was the norm a few years back but has yeah. perhaps declined a bit in recent times but um how quickly people reacted and, and came together it has been absolutely incredible i suppose in midlothian there's quite a few might you know, former mining yeah. communities and i think that definitely there's a real community cohesion in, in in places like that that's been one of the big hits of the pandemic is the fact that none of the the gala days have been able to take place last year um which are always a, a great part of the the summer um, in Midlothian, but um, I know that the Galladay committees are, are together are looking to see what they can do this year, but it's th still the level of uncertainty, but mm -hmm. they would normally spend a whole year fundraising to put on the event in the summer, and they can't do most of that. So there's all these other things that we now need to think about how we actually yeah. address and cover gaps and, and to see what we can do to, to support in ways that we've maybe not had to do before yeah. Um, yeah. because it's not just the things themselves it's all the build-up to them that can't take place so that needs to be factored in as well I hadn't even thought about those and uh... and just preparing I've got an adjournment debate which is on end of the day debate next Monday so 10 o'clock next Monday night on support for limited company directors. So it's, it's very much keeping with the theme of folk who haven't had uh, any support because a lot of these folk, it's, they're, they're maybe a limited company director, which sounds very impressive, but often they're the only director of a single person operation. So they can't furlough themselves because they furlough themselves, suddenly there's nobody to run the business, all that sort of stuff. So yeah. uh, there's a number of issues that tie into that. And uh, well, the council locally are for some bizarre reason, choosing this point in a pandemic to close a primary school. Um, so they've cancelled all of their other meetings except tomorrow when they're having a meeting just to close a primary school, um, which just utterly baffles me. 
Um, so I'll be pulling together, uh, once I see what their actual verdict on it is, I'll be certainly pulling together my thoughts and submitting them to the, the Scottish Government along with the Council's um, recommendation to close. Because I just, I can't understand it. You're, yeah. you're asking people to have more space. You're, Midlothian's the fastest growing population in Scotland, as we are continually told uh, by councillors in, in Midlothian. And for some reason, they think closing a school is a good answer to it. And yeah, to me, it just abandons communities. But um, that's maybe just me. And I just don't understand it. Which school is um, that that they're talking of closing? Uh, Glencore's primary up at Ockendinny. They tried to close it three times when I was a councillor. Um, and three times we rejected it. But bizarrely, they've just brought it. Yeah, it's... It's frustrating, uh, very, very frustrating, especially the timing of it. When, when they've sort of say they've gone down to only dealing with emergency type situations, that this is one that they can find time for. So, yeah. But having been a councillor, you know how to work that system, and I'm sure that gives you a a, a real in with all the the local problems in the area. I hope, I hope so. I think certainly I, I I feel that my time in the council was very, very useful. Um, to just get in the broad understanding of the communities and and how decision making works at that level, and it also means when folk, I mean, a large part of my casework is council related. Um, so when folk are coming to ask things, it's I'm not starting from scratch. Yeah. Um, yeah. That which definitely helps, but it, it it doesn't always mean that we get the outcomes that we want. Sadly, that that's probably the biggest frustration in the role that no matter how good a case you can make for somebody you can't always get exactly what outcome you would hope to achieve and that that is massively frustrating and here's my final question for you the pandemic has of course affected everybody but what i've been asking people is how has it affected you for good what what good thing has come out of it that might not otherwise have happened um well i've certainly been able to be at home more with my wee one um that that's a definite bonus um because she's not been in the nursery as as much as she might have been for a lot of last year so that that's been been brilliant um and yeah just i suppose being able to be in the community more albeit that we're limited to how much we can do just actually physically being here uh, is a, a definite bonus because in a normal year normal time soon parliamentary sitting I would pretty much I would be away pretty much every Monday to Wednesday often I went Monday to Thursday sometimes a Monday to Friday so the time that you're actually in the constituency is limited whereas because of the the pandemic I've been able to be local um far more and I, I see my role as representing this community in parliament not being in parliament to represent the community if and I do see a distinction in that so to me, it's very important to be able to be in the community and, and be out and about in the community, um, even if it is limited in, in different ways. So perhaps that's uh, you know a recommendation for the future then for Parliament. If, uh, if they can get their virtual sittings back, then uh, maybe it yeah. could be more, more mixed and more hybrid sittings would be a good I think thing. So. Because, I mean, there, there would be, on a very basic level, there would be very genuine savings to the taxpayer. Um, because there are weeks where we may have expected votes that don't happen. There's so last week, for example, the only votes we had there were three votes on the Wednesday night, and 
in theory, some people could have had to travel only on the Wednesday to vote on the Wednesday night to travel home again. So that's eight minutes per vote, so 24 minutes when they're actually required to, to be there. Whereas if you brought in electronic voting and none of their other business had to be in Parliament, they could do it all in their constituency, they could log on and vote, and they could still do so much more in the constituency. So, uh, yeah, I think there are ways that they could... I would like to see them keep a lot of the processes that have been brought in that allow for virtual participation because it recognises the modern world where most of parliamentary procedure doesn't. I think I'm probably fighting against a losing tide in that one. Um, I suspect there will be far more will want to see us return to whatever normal uh, looks like when when they can. Um, and some have been very vocal about that. But I hope I just hope that some of the things that have been brought in are able to be, be retained. Well, I think you're up against Mr. This is one of the platforms where we can help advertise your business to our listeners. Would you like to know more about that? Then email editor at theedinburghreporter.co.uk And remember, you can subscribe to have our monthly newspaper delivered to you direct. Sign up today on our website, www.theedinburghreporter.co.uk Christina, you're going to tell us how difficult this is to um, stage a centenary exhibition for one of Scotland's greatest artists. Has it been a long time in the making, this exhibition? And are you just forging ahead regardless? We're just forging ahead regardless because we don't have a, a you know, we don't have a safety net. And when you don't have a safety net, that makes you think uh, and behave in a completely different way. Um, I mean, it might be madness, but it's, it's, we just, when the doors closed on us on the 23rd of March last year, it was just, well, how do we, how do we keep representing our artists? And we, we're part of the creative industries and what the artists do is very visual. Um, and we're very lucky that we work with technology. So it was about, it was about turning, turning the language of visual communication from people coming into the gallery to us going, taking the work out with the gallery. Joan Erdley is too important to not do anything for, and she's too interesting to too many people. She still hasn't received um, a major exhibition at the Tate in London, which is something that we would love to see. She, you know, she is just an astonishing talent. Um, it is disappointing that Glasgow is not hosting something major on, on her work. That was her hometown. That's where she, she went to Glasgow School of Art. I don't know when Glasgow will start to represent women artists, um, but they could have started with Joan Erdley. And we're, we, we showed her during uh, her lifetime and we continue to show her talent. It's very difficult for a commercial art gallery, but we have worked very carefully. Um, I mean, Guy Pepler did an exhibition in 2007 here where we had kept works back for several years and um, building up a quiet 
portfolio of, of images and so on. Because John Eardley's work, it really hits you when you see it on in mass rather than one example. One example is great, but her work's actually really complex. We've always wanted to show the just the sheer electric talent that, that Joan Eardley's work is. And, and every time when her work meets a new audience, it has the same emotional impact. And so she's got these two subjects. I mean, for, for a woman who lived a short life, finding these two subjects, I mean, I mean, you go to Catalan and it literally is the edge of a field and she just turned it into this epic I mean, that sea is incredible on the northeast of Scotland. We have to explain a little here, I think, about uh, about what Caterline is. It's where it's her spiritual home. It is, and it's a little fishing village on the northeast of Scotland. And it's a it's a little row of houses on the edge of a hilltop. And it's it's a traditional herring fishing village. And, and then it's farmland. And so it is the edge of a field, um, but the sea there is epic. And actually, in terms of Scottish history, I mean, each square centimetre of, of that part of coastline from Mary, Queen of Scots and so on. I mean, it's just so rich in, 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 in history um, in that part of Scotland. Um, and she she just found this, this incredible patch and she turned it into this. I mean, it was literally her battling with this, the, with the sea and the landscape, but she knew every tree, every hedgerow, every plant. She knew it all so intimately. And she just said, the more you stand in one place, the more you see. Um, and then and then there was the studio in, in Townhead. We, for, we forget that she, she was a, a student during the Second World War and you couldn't, she did do some traveling bursaries, but um, some of that was, it, you know, tra travel and so on was a little bit restricted. And Glasgow School of Art, they, they would say to students, go, go to go to Townhead, because if, if you put on a pair of sort of rose-tinted spectacles, it looks a little bit like Venice. And and it was also in walking distance from the art school. And, she, you know, she just found that place. She The children found Joan. She didn't find the children. She was really interested in the architecture of, of Townhead. I know we've gone off the first first part of that question. But, but with Joan, Joan Erdley, we just think she's too special uh, not to do something. And we have, we have shown through one means or another that we can communicate to a much, much bigger audience now. So we have... So we are hoping um, that we will be open in, in, in some way to the public. Um, it may be restricted, but that but in, in a way that's good because th then it means it'll be even more intimate when you walk through the door. I mean, there's nothing worse than going into a really crowded exhibition, but Joan Erdley does drive big audience numbers. And, and I would imagine that there will be dedicated individuals who will be determined to come in here to see a Joan Erdley exhibition. The National Galleries of Scotland are planning... Uh, it's not a huge exhibition, but they're planning an exhibition on Catalyne, and that that may or may not open in May. They've they've got their own difficulties with 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 opening and health and safety and so on, but that should dovetail in at the same time. So there'll be a number of reasons to come to Edinburgh, even if it's by appointment, um, to see her work. So Patrick Elliott has curated um, Catalyne, and he's really, I mean, he's done a sort of investigative. Um, you know, it's just really gone to town on the detail of, of Catalan. So that's going to be really interesting. We're showing work from all of her career. Um, so there, there'll be early works. There'll be works from Catalan and, and works from Townhead. We'll put together um, a publication. And, and you know, we, we, we're working with Joan Erdley's niece. We're also working with, with Dovekit Tapestry Studios. They're, they're creating a private commission of, 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 a, 
of a Joan Erdley. They're going to be putting a webcam up soon. So we should all be able to see the making of this tapestry. And so although it's a tapestry of a work that exists, it doesn't matter. It's the creation of, of a new work. So we just want to tie in with, with all the groups. So the Joan Erdley um, official website, um, which is spearheaded by, by um Joan Erdley's niece and Morrison Hudson. We just try and make friends with everyone because at the forefront, it's Joan Erdley. So we so we can do that with online events. So if, if people are still very reluctant to travel, because we know that some people will be desperate to get back out again, and then there'll be a lot of people who just won't want to go anywhere until things are more settled. And they can do that. So they can, they can come to our exhibition through one means or another. So we use a device called Matterport. It's a fantastic engineering device, and it allows you to come into our gallery and you can walk around virtually at your own time. We call them a viewing room. And it is not the same as the emotional impact of being in the gallery but it really does help. And we will be adding to that. So we're more and more discovering what else we can do with that device. So for some pictures that are really important, um, we want to be able to go into them. So that means that if you have visual impairment or if you have hearing issues and so on, there's, you know, we're really being, you can come to our gallery. There is nothing to stop you from, from, from coming to our Joan Erdley exhibition. You can come to our online events. We're hoping to tie in with everyone because there's so many people that know so much about Joan Erdley, either either through family or with our gallery experience and so on. There is just so many people who know, because Joan Erdley, she's just someone that you become obsessed by. I think you have. I think you've become obsessed with her, Christina. I think I, I could listen to you talk about her all day. But I think that the, the important thing for us um, here in Edinburgh is A, that you're showing um, her paintings. There's also this uh, lovely tie-in with Dovecut on Infirmary Street where we'll be able to watch uh, the tapestry of her painting come to life. But the painting itself that the tapestry is based on is from the City Art Centre collection, which is again a lovely tie-in. So even though she's painting in Glasgow, um, I think we, we have to feel quite proud perhaps here in Edinburgh that, uh, that you're staging this uh, in this year of uh, what would have been her hundredth birthday year? Well, she was she was on. I mean, the thing about Joan Erdley, she, I mean, she's such a romantic figure. You know, when anyone dies young, it's it. What could have been? What? Where was she going to go next? And and I think what's really interesting is that Pat, Patrick Elliott touches on that with his Catalan exhibition. So he's really looked at where she was going internationally because she was just about to have a show in New York. So, and that's why we're all really passionate about her work because just because she's no longer here, that doesn't mean that, that there shouldn't be a push for that international recognition. I mean, other artists, they were obsessed by Joan Erdley. I mean, so many artists were, were painting in her style years after she she died. It, some of it was deliberate and some of it was totally subliminal. It was just the, it looked as if it, it, she'd found these subjects and it was easy. It wasn't easy. She she had a struggle every single day, but it was just her, her drive um, and her passion. And, and actually because she, she had kind of kept on these two subjects. I mean, Townhead was interesting from a, you know, just from a social point of view, she painted Scotland coming out of a post-war era. It was that struggle of the past and going into a modern. And she was kind of showing how that was, you know, there's so much debate around what happened to the movement and the transportation of, of, of a people. Um, and she showed that being poor 
there was so much richness in being poor because these people loved each other and they really looked after each other and she painted that, that, that community. What kind of paintings are you hoping to have in the exhibition? Where are they coming from and how many do you hope to have within the Scottish Gallery? Well, we'll have several. Um, so we've got, we've got one phenomenal example of an, an oil painting of, of a girl and we have lots of um, pastel studies. Um, so we're, the, it will be highly representative of her career. And then we're bringing back one or two examples of work that we have sold. There's a, a beautiful painting of a townhead building. It just, I mean, it's just the intimacy of the building is as warm as her understanding of the people. It's just the whole fabric of the places within there. Some people don't like the children. They, 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 they see poverty and they, they don't feel comfortable with it. Um, and they don't and they don't like the children. Um, but we we really in, in terms of British painting, there is the portrait paintings that she created. There's nothing like it. I mean, they are astonishing. One of our previous directors, it was the only private commission that she did. So we're hoping to have the the bring some of the Macaulay children in because it's actually a lovely contrast between children who are middle class and well fed and not dirty. Um, and the contrast between the town, they sometimes go out there as, as being as being the, the, the street children from Glasgow, but they're so different. Um, so we, we're hoping to bring some of that in as well, because that's really part of our, our own our own history as well, which she really didn't want to do a commission of, she didn't paint her own family and so on. She chose her own subjects. So I think she felt a bit awkward, but actually it's, it's brilliant um, because it, it serves as such a, a, a such a good contrast. I, we don't see the poverty in, in, the, in the children. We just see the characters. We see the empathy. We see the love. There's nothing sentimental about them whatsoever, although sentiment is sometimes applied to her work. It was just a community that just disappeared and, and you know, was, was modern life a success? Um, or not, it's, it's, it's up to other people to debate what, what happened to Glasgow um, after, after, after Townhead was knocked down. So she's really interesting. And some people only love her Catalan landscapes. Um, so the, lands, the, the landscapes are really incredible. She's just an emotional powerhouse. And we're so pleased to hear you being so passionate about it. I think it's terrific when uh, somebody really knows about something and is able to pass on some of that passion. So you're going to be staging the Joan Ardley Centenary uh, from the 28th of July to the 29th of August, 2021. And we hope that will be running at the same time as the Edinburgh International Festival, but we'll all see. We, we feel like we've been here before. Uh, so last year we went, we just, we just went for it. You know, we're based in Edinburgh and this is, this is our city. Um, so again, we just we just feel well, we were here before the festival, and we're just going to continue in the spirit of the festival. It's obviously a very very difficult time. You've got the entire world to be vaccinated. International travel will not be easy, but I just feel really strongly that we've got a duty to uh, people who live locally and people who live much further afield. Um, and I, I hope no one takes it for granted, but um, we. We just really like communicating what our artists do. I mean, that's how the Scottish Gallery is defined. It's 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 these talents such as Joan Erdley that define who who we are. So that's who we're serving, and and the people who come here that they, they make the Scottish Gallery who who we are. So that's what we're serving. So we're not just cancelling things. We're just going for it.
Donardley Centenary will run at the Scottish Gallery from 28th July to 29th August 2021.